We're one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And that's a beautiful song with or without the words. And I, I hope that that will tie in very well to uh, the message that we're, we're now about to have. It's always great to be back to my hometown, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, chance to see my wife. And I don't think I've been here for uh, my wife, my, my mother. <laughs> that's so funny. You know, they always say you marry, you know, you you marry your mother, you know that thing. I got to this thing lately where I often will call my wife by the name of our, our youngest daughter and vice versa. I don't know where all that comes from, uh, but there, there's a reason. Yeah, it, it could be age. It could be something else. It could be something else. But it's always great to be back here, uh, to see my mom, uh, to see many of you, and just to see how this group keeps changing. It's very, very encouraging. Uh, it's been a wonderful year uh, up in Atlanta. Uh, I've been out a little bit, mainly Latin America. Next weekend I'll be in Dallas, uh, Los Angeles, North Carolina, uh, Canada, Africa, Europe. I'll be speaking at Princeton. Uh, my next university visit is to Harvard. So I've got all kinds of fun things just on the horizon. Uh, since the last time here, just updating you, I keep recording podcasts. I've got some new books. One came out just eight days ago. I hope you'll get it. It's back there. And a, a new DVD set, especially for high school and college students on faith and science. And one reason I record it is to just to blow away the objections. There's some people who say that, well, you can't, you have to choose between uh, the Bible and science. You don't understand that these things are complementary. They're talking about different things anyway. I really want to help people to believe. That's kind of what my job is. Lately, the last six months, when people ask me, what do I do? I get into these conversations. When I meet people, sometimes at events, or maybe I'm you know, the person I'm flying next to on the plane, what do you do? And I say, well, my job is to make people think about faith. And I think that is really what I want to do. I want to help believers to be thinking men and women, not just to be witless, uh, you know, floating along the current, never asking anything with a boring, flat faith. I also want to make thinkers who don't believe, people who may be even skeptical or atheistic. I want them to believe. I want them to see the harmony of God and His Word and logic and reason, how it all fits together. Today, and so thank you for having me for the chance to speak. It is the 17th of March. Um, I can tell that by looking at the uh, unusually uh, green uh, color in the clothes. And I do have an entire lesson ready on St. Patrick. Uh, and don't laugh, he's an inspiring guy. Uh, you, half the stuff you heard about him isn't true at all. He's an amazing uh, example, a role model, just a terrific guy. Maybe another time, another March 17th, he'll invite me. But you see, right now we're in a series. And so I'm fitting in. You guys have been in the book of Acts. And I've been given a very specific text today. And so, alas, today, Patrick must yield to Stephen. That's the way it works. Now, last time, while you're opening your Bible to Acts chapter 6, uh, last time you ended with the misunderstanding in the church. There was, a, there was some ethnic tension because the, the church was not monolithic, homogeneous. There were people who were good Hebrew, Jewish, Hebrew through and through. At night, they dreamt in Aramaic. I mean, they, they were as Jewish as you could be. But there are others, they were Jewish, but they came from a Greek-speaking culture. 
When they dreamt at night, they dreamt in Greek. They were called Hellenistic. Hellas is just a word that means Greece. So they, their, their culture was Hellenistic, and in many of your Bibles, that's the word it uses in the beginning of Acts 6. So there were, uh, there were two parts of the church in Jerusalem, in a sense. There was the more the Jewish-Jewish part, the Hebrew part, and then you had the more Greek part. And those people felt that they were being overlooked by the dominant ethnic group. The minority felt they were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food by the majority group, and, and they were. And so to deal with those misunderstandings, uh, they choose seven men. And this is, I believe, where you ended. And Philip and Stephen are two of them. And Stephen is full of faith. He's wise. Uh, he, in particular, was someone who understood uh, people who felt misunderstood. He understood people who were underrepresented. And he was one of the seven deacons. And the, in the New Testament and the early church, the deacons have a, a very specific role. And it's to, it's, it's to bring the... Uh, the, the goods, the, the physical blessings of the church to the community to help the poor, to touch the lives of the needy. That's what they did. And so this is a man who's faithful, he's wise, he's, of course, he's from that minority background. So he understands both sides. He sees something others don't see. He has insight, uh, he's serving, and as we'll see today, he becomes the first martyr for Christ. Jesus, of course, begins the movement through giving his own life, and this is the next one to be executed, is Stephen. And as I've wrestled with this message, and I had uh, many weeks to prepare and to think, and I've put many hours into preparing this, I feel a bit inadequate. I, I wrote this question down for myself in my notes, and it's even, I have the yellow highlighter through it, not on the computer screen, it's something you, it, it does electronically. Would I have been as good a man as Stephen? You know, I, we want to give ourselves credit. If I lived back then, you know, I would have done this. Or In this situation, I would never cave in and do that. You know, we say that. Or, wow, when the church made a wrong left turn doctrinally, I would have stopped them back in the 8th century or whatever. You know, we say, well, I would have seen it. I would have spoken up. Really? How do you know you would have, A, had the courage, B, had the wisdom? Maybe you would have had one without the other. Or isn't it quite likely we would have been missing both of them? So my question is, will I be as righteous a man as he will? I think we have to be humble about this. Jesus had some words for people who, were, who over-appraised their, their righteousness. Uh, they, he, in Matthew 23, that chapter where he... he he lays into the establishment, into the leadership. And he says that you say, oh, you know, we wouldn't have killed the prophets if we had lived in the time of our ancestors, our spiritual fathers or forefathers. We wouldn't have killed the prophets. We wouldn't have resisted them. Yeah, but you decorate the graves of the prophets. And what Jesus is saying there, you're no, you're no different from the, the other generations. They killed the prophets, and you decorate the prophets' graves. But don't think you're so different. And this actually feeds that thought, which is extraneous in a way, because I just thought of it. But it feeds into exactly what we're looking at in our study today. So the questions for, for Douglas, would I have been as good a man as Stephen? Will I be a, as righteous a man as he was? I guess maybe I shouldn't answer that yet. 
because my life's not over and yours isn't either. So please, I'm inviting you to come into the text. The text is Acts 6-8 to 8-4. Clearly, we cannot read every word, but we'll go through enough of it. So let's begin in 6-8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And I'll just pause there because there, there are a number of terms. Synagogue of the freedmen? I guess their founders, or maybe they themselves were freed slaves. Uh, they, uh, it refers to Cyrenians. Remember Simon of Cyrene? The one who carried the cross for Jesus part of the way? It's in North Africa. So I think of someone African, but maybe Berber. You know, kind of the curly hair, very fair skin. Uh, the Alexandrians. Alexandria is in Egypt. Northeast Egypt. Uh, I just got a message from Egypt just recently. I'll share it with you in a few minutes. But you have people from there. And Alexandria was the second largest city in the empire. What was number one? It wasn't Jerusalem. It was Rome. So you've got these urban people. Cilicia and Asia. Well, Cilicia, that's, that's in what would be modern Turkey. That's where, that's where Paul was from, or Paul's father. Asia doesn't mean a continent. It doesn't even mean uh, the small Asia Minor, which is Turkey, it means the province of Asia, the very western part of, of Turkey. And if you're joining on our tour in October, you're going to get to see a lot of these places. Please come with me. So these people are disputing with Stephen. Uh, they're sophisticated. I think they think they're, they're pretty cool. They're urbanized. They're with it. They're part of the modern world. And maybe open-minded Jews. These are people who their perspective, and they take him on. You know, someone needs to put Stephen in his place. What is Stephen doing, embracing this Messiah? But Stephen, <laughs> they've underestimated him. Verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they played dirty. They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, and the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. That's the high council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders. And they set up false witnesses. And they said, this man never ceases to speak against the holy place and the law. And I think I better pause again. What are they accusing him of? They're saying he's speaking against the holy place. That phrase, place, I know it's a really place, really simple word, but place in Jewish writing, especially the Gospel of John, one of New Testament example, means the temple. That's the place. Like, you know, the place, which is so awesome. If you've not been there, you've not been anywhere. Some of the rabbis said, if you've never seen the temple at Jerusalem, you've never seen a beautiful building in your life. It was as beautiful and stupendous as it was 
let's say, inert. It's hard to overcome inertia. It's institutions were deep and proud. And people were very attached to the temple and the religious institutions that the temple embodied. And so they're portraying Stephen as an enemy, not of the state, but of the church. Four, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple. Remember when Jesus was tried? This is one of the charges. And he's going to change the customs Moses delivered to us. Like what? Well, we will be talking about circumcision, eating kosher, and probably the Sabbath. The three main markers of, of Judaism. Well, it's true that Jesus did prophesy the destruction of the temple. You know that. People were very impressed with the temple. For example, Matthew 24, Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. It's all going to come down. It will all be destroyed. And it was destroyed 40 years later in the first Jewish war. Let's continue. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't quite know what that means. I've heard that joke. You know, you talk about St. Patrick. You know, the, the thing, you know, oh yeah, my friend Patty, yeah, he's got, he's got the face of a saint. A St. Bernard. Okay. <laughs> I, I get that. I don't really get what the face of an angel is. I mean, sometimes you call... You know, you call your wife angel. But what does that mean? I'm not sure, but I think part of it might be that he looked honest. And their agenda, these sophisticated opponents of his, their agenda was more important than whatever he had to say. So his honesty, his obvious earnestness didn't count. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. He's respectful. He's trying to win them. He's trying to connect. And he reasons with them in the following verses from their own history. So you may say, wow, chapter 6 was so short. Look how long chapter 7 is. You see that? Let your eyes wander through chapter 7. What do you see? You see names, places, and if you don't know your Old Testament, you would yawn. If you know your Old Testament, it's exciting because you, you know the thread. You know the story. And he rehearses the story with them. He reasons with them from their own heritage and tradition, just the way Joshua does at the end of the book of Joshua, before he calls the people to be serious and committed, just the way Paul did it. In the book of Acts later, when, when Paul was a Christian, the way he uses his knowledge of history to help them. I'll just read some selections from this chapter. Look at verse 9. It talks about the patriarchs. Jealous of Joseph. This is referring to Joseph's brothers, his loving brothers who sold him into slavery. They loved him so much they didn't kill him. They decided to make a little profit. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. Wait a minute, the patriarchs? We're talking about the 12 tribes. We're talking about Simeon and Manasseh and Ephraim and Judah and Levi and Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali and 
I mean, Judah and Levi, we're proud of these people. This is our heritage. Stephen points out the patriarchs, your spiritual forefathers, had a problem with Joseph. They had a problem with truth. They had a problem with jealousy. They sold Joseph into Egypt. Now, we know that because Joseph was in Egypt, about 22 years later, he's able to save his loving brothers and his father, his mother has since passed on, He's able to save them from starvation because he rose up. Because he was a good man. He was righteous and God exalted him. You see, they sold him to Egypt, but God was with him. Now, there are, there's, there are overtones here. I, I want you to try to hear it. Our ancestors were jealous. They were wicked. They opposed the truth. But God was with them. What is Stephen really saying? How is he tying the biblical story into his own situation? Look down at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. By the hand of the angel appeared to him in the bush. This man, Moses, was ruler and redeemer. Now, when you hear those words, ruler and redeemer, what comes to your mind? You're in church. It's Sunday morning. Ruler, like Lord, like Lord of Lords. Ruler, redeemer, like salvation. Oh, there are a lot of comparisons between Moses and Jesus. And if you're reading Acts 7, and you were reading Acts, you already read chapter 3. In chapter 3, Moses is referred to. Because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said there will be a second Moses. God will raise up from among you a prophet like me. Well, like Moses. See, in the Old Testament, Moses was unique. There's no other Moses. Because he, he gave the law. He led his people. He was part of their redemption. I mean, they came out of Egypt, out of slavery, through the water. And, and, and he did the miracles. There's no other figure like that in the Old Testament. Come to the New Testament. Who led his people, redeemed them through water, did miracles, and brought the law, and even dared to say, well, Moses said this, you've heard that, but I'm telling you this. Jesus, the second Moses, the ruler and the redeemer. This man... Moses led them out, performing wonders and signs. 37. Moses said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. The Muslims say that's referring to Muhammad. That's impossible. Because the passage says he'll be Jewish. It's Christ. Read Acts 3. Um, I, I, I skip down farther. I, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. They have a history of rejecting God and being rejected by God. And that's what Stephen is emphasizing in his message. Notice that he reasons with them from their own history. Could you do that? Could you do that? Could you visit uh, a people, visit a, another country, and, and, and share the gospel, and refer to aspects of that country's history and culture that would enhance the gospel and help them to see the patterns in their culture, so that they might open their minds. Could you do that? 
if we don't have a broad grasp of the Old Testament, why don't we pray to be like Stephen? He was able to recite the Old Testament. He knew the story. He was able to interpret the scriptures with passion and without notes. With passion and without notes. There's not a reason in the world any one-year-old Christian shouldn't know the biblical story inside and out, have it down cold, and be able to recite it even if he or she went blind and can never read a word again. We should know the story. We may never be at Stephen's level. Because Stephen was no ordinary person. He was full of the spirit and wisdom back in 6364, laid hands upon by the apostles, one of the deacons serving the poor. We're not Stephen, but we can be like Stephen. Verse 48, as he continues his challenge, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. This is referring to the temple. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is a place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Oh, didn't God make heaven and earth? Look at the image. Heaven's his throne. Earth's his footstool. God is so big that the earth is, you know, that's where he props up his feet. Remember when Isaiah had a vision of God in Isaiah 6? It's not to be taken literally. God doesn't have feet and a robe. But in Isaiah's vision, he's in the temple, in the vision, and the temple's shaking, and it's filled with smoke, with the presence of God. And God's seated, and the train of his robe, just the bottom of his robe is filling up the temple. God is so enormous. So enormous that the thought that you could put him in a box, you could put him in a temple, is laughable. Well, we would never do that. We would never say, oh, we, we captured God. We, we got him in our church. We had the exclusive rights. Don't get into an intellectual property dispute. We have the monopoly. Or we, we take, maybe not God, but we take an aspect of God. His glory or the mystery of the incarnation of the Trinity. And we try to capture it in two or three sentences or definitions or creeds or formulas. As though we can tame God. As though we can boil God down to his essence and just write it on a paragraph and then put it on a post-it. You can't do that. And you know, these words were from Solomon. When Solomon built the temple, first temple, because they used to meet in a tent before they got the permanent property, they, he, he dedicates a temple. This is back in 1 Kings 8. And he prays this incredible prayer. Lord, the heavens, the highest heavens cannot possibly contain you. How much less this house that I built. So really, Stephen's audience should have known better than to put so much stock in the temple system. God is beyond. He's infinitely beyond. He's cosmic. And so, in verses 48 to 50, he challenges the institution. The house is the temple, but it doesn't house God. You can never contain God in a house. And we equate the institution with God, and I still hear the terminology. It drives me crazy. 
who have you been in touch with in the kingdom lately? The, king, the kingdom of Thailand? Or the royal kingdom of Saudi Arabia? The Hashemite kingdom of Jordan? What kingdom are you talking about? You know, the church. Well, the church is not the kingdom. But you didn't mean that, did you? You meant our church. You think God's whole kingdom, which includes heaven and earth and spans the millennia, is the same thing as one group? Are you nuts? Have you not read your Bible? I, I got an interesting speaking invitation last week. It's a southwestern city which I will not name, though it is sometimes compared with Sodom and Gomorrah. But I'll say no more. But what they want me to teach on in, uh, in the autumn is the kingdom of God. Because the leaders say there's still a lot of members there who don't understand that the kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. They think that the goal, our number one goal should be to bring freedom and our political system to all the world and thus the world can become Christian instead of preaching the gospel. In other words, it's, it's the kind of kingdom idea that the Jews had in the first century. Lord, this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This political idea. In the 1800s, this kind of talk was very common in two groups from my study of church history. The Churches of Christ and the Mormons. Both of which constantly interchanged their movement with the kingdom. Now the Mormons said that that God was going to establish his kingdom in North America and this new nation, the United States, would be the embodiment of that kingdom. So that's a bit out there. But read the Book of Mormon. It's, it's right there. It's very easy. The Church of Christ, which is in our genetic DNA, also used similar language. Not about the politics, but church equals kingdom. That is exactly the kind of thing that Stephen was arguing against, and that's exactly the reason he was killed, because he took a stand against the establishment. Now, I know some people, especially young people, like taking a stand against the establishment just because they like to take a stand against something. And I'm not trying to fuel that kind of activity, just being novel for the sake of being novel or difficult for the sake of argument. But you can't go very far in discussions in this world or in sharing your faith with the lost before you will get into this very issue. Do you have the courage it takes and the faith to see that God is so much bigger than a formula or a creed or an institution? How do they react? Well, he's not quite done yet. <laughs> Let's see how they react in verse 51. You stiff-necked people! Now, that, that's, a, that's a phrase of the Old Testament. You won't bend your neck. There's no humility. You're not flexible. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Circumcision is used figuratively in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, and other places. It means that they, they can't listen. They're unclean. And the ears, they're not listening. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. See, he's summing up the whole thing here. Which of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 
what kind of response was Stephen looking for here? Did he know, and when did he know? They saw his face was like the face of an angel. What did he see in their eyes? When did he know, I've got nothing to lose now. The die is cast. I've crossed the Rubicon. I've built all my bridges. They'll do with me what they will, but I've got to finish. They are grinding their teeth. They're gnashing their teeth. What does it mean to gnash the teeth? In the Bible, like in Psalm 112, gnashing is a sign of anger. It's like the image of those who refuse to humble out even at the judgment day. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're weeping and sadness, but they're gnashing their teeth because they're still angry with God and they refuse to humble out. They're angry. It's not that they're poor, helpless, please give them a third chance. They're angry. And Stephen will be executed for blasphemy. He'll be executed for blasphemy. As Jesus was. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man. That phrase never appears in the Bible except on Jesus' lips. And here. In other words, he sees. Jesus, right there with God. What Old Testament passage shows the Messiah and the Lord God reigning, sharing a throne, so to speak? There's only one passage that does that, and that's Psalm 110. And that would be another lesson. But he sees that Jesus is divine. He's at the right hand of the Father. This will not be tolerated. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. For you older Christians, it's interesting. There's another Saul from the tribe of Benjamin who persecuted the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah. And I never heard a lesson on that. But that parallel between Saul's rejection of David and Saul of Tarsus, the future Apostle Paul, in his rejection of Christ. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. This is, to me, the most amazing part of, of the whole section. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep which in the Bible simply means he died. And I found parallels between the death of Stephen and the death of Christ. Look at this. I found seven. A man who challenged the system, who was tried before the high priest on trumped-up charges. He was executed outside the city of Jerusalem. Hold that thought for a moment. You know, blasphemers... Blasphemers were stoned under Jewish law, Leviticus 24. Even Paul himself would later be stoned outside the city in Acts 14. So, challenge the system, tried before the high priest, trumped up charges outside the city. That phrase, son of man, you can compare it to Luke 22. That phrase only appears on Jesus' lips and here. 
He forgives his enemies, like Luke 23, 43, which is easier said than done. I heard one biblical scholar, uh, she is a New Testament scholar, an amazing person actually, and she's Jewish. She says, in the ancient world, Jesus is the only figure, the only one who said we should forgive our enemies and love our enemies. Amazing. And uh, at his death, he commits his spirit to God. Uh, maybe you can find more parallels. I found seven between Stephen's death and Jesus' death. And Luke, you know, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. It's a two-volume work. He's made these parallels pretty obvious. But what strikes me is not so much the parallels. It's, it's the amazing man Stephen is. And I'm thinking, could I possibly have the righteousness, integrity, and courage of Stephen? Not all martyrs were killed in ancient times, you know. In the summer, I was in Uganda. They have, on June 3rd, Martyrs Day. It was only about 100 years ago. 150 people said, we won't give up our faith in Christ. And they were all executed. They are all executed. In Egypt, the persecution keeps going. I got an encouraging email in January. Suleiman said, my son was just baptized. He's the main leader there. In February, though, I got an email saying, we feel like we're in a dark tunnel. We don't know where the light is. Surely you know what's been happening in Egypt. And you know about the persecution and the death squads. In fact, every week in our world, men and women are martyred for Christ. And if you go to persecution.com, you can sign up and get those weekly updates which should lead us to pray for those who are persecuted and martyred. Would I be willing to be martyred, or would I be chicken? Would you back down, or would you, would you die for your faith? You can't answer that. I mean, you can answer it. <laughs> for the people who answer it with such confidence, even if everyone else runs away, I'll never run away, Peter. Probably it's best not to, not to say. You know, Saul approves of the execution, verse, verse 1. Saul's organizing it. Saul of Tarsus, the future Apostle Paul, is not a bystander. He's the organizer. And there arose on that, great, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great mourning over him. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And that's where our text ends. With the great persecution, Saul approving it, organizing it, persecuting Saul. No guilty conscience. He knew he was right. And the church mourns. But the church still grows. It mourns. Our church in Atlanta is mourning right now. One week. And one hour ago, one of the sisters was getting ready for church. She got into her car, and she was murdered. She was shot. 70-year-old. She came 
Well, she's 72. She was baptized when she was 70, just two years ago. She was shot and killed. The story is much bigger than that. You'll probably read about it, disciples, today. But our sister Kay was murdered last Sunday. And even though no one has any doubt about her heart, still we mourn. It's not wrong to mourn. And even though it's a time of upheaval and turbulence, there's preaching. Who is scattered? Well, it says everyone but the apostles is scattered. But the examples they give are people like Philip. So I, I don't know if it means everyone was scattered or it means all the leaders were scattered except the apostles. I don't know how to read it. But I do know they weren't being chickens because Jesus said, if they persecute you, run away. Matthew 10. He didn't say back down and cheat, but if you can flee to another city, do it. I would like to think that they conducted themselves in the manner and spirit of Stephen. We can walk in the steps of Stephen. Stephen bore witness to Christ in 32 AD, yet by faith he continues to speak today. Faith. A disciple who resists to the point of bloodshed, he doesn't love his life so much as to shrink from death. Revelation 12.11 If you want more on his faith, um, I just opened it up, my podcast on Stephen, 20 minutes long. Please listen to it and go further. I think that we too should be able, like Stephen, to tell the old story. That we should have the big picture of biblical history and see God's desire for all people to be reached. But I can't end there. I, I, I'll come back for the Florida Discipleship Conference. I'll be back in a few short weeks. But I want you, in the meantime, to remember this man and his testimony and for this to make a difference in your life. Remember Paul's passionate wish in Philippians 3? Paul said he wanted to become like Stephen, uh, like Christ in his death. And so I want to leave you We've already talked about them, but please give me your attention as I leave you with seven challenges inspired by the parallels between the deaths of Stephen and Christ. And I think these thoughts will also give us something to think about as we take the communion. And these are the parallels, and they really are their challenges. One to be willing to leave the comfort zone, to have the guts to challenge the system. Maybe you just you can't stand up to your religious friends. Maybe you're studying the Bible and you don't have the courage to admit that what the Bible says is clear, but churches have changed this. Maybe you're struggling over biblical repentance or biblical baptism. Take a stand. Leave the comfort zone. Prepare for conflict. Maybe with religious leaders in the Bible. They're normally the ones who are heading up the persecution, but not always. But prepare for conflict. Three, don't get bent out of shape when your words are twisted and you're misrepresented. Trumped up charges. When, they, when the people lie about you and your friends, it will happen. If you're sharing your faith, it already has happened. I guarantee it. The Bible tells us we're actually blessed. Four, be gracious towards those who oppose us. And in fact, be gracious towards everyone. When you drive away today, be gracious on the road. Don't tailgate 
Don't be angry. Don't disgrace the name of Christ for something as stupid as saving 30 seconds. Christians should be Christians when they drive. They should be Christians when they talk to their children. Sometimes the parents are disrespectful. Sometimes it's not just the kids being disrespectful. Christians show grace to all, especially in the family of faith, but, but outside, even to enemies. That's hard to do. Stephen, he forgives them like Christ. I, I, I stumble on that. You know, Luke 23, 43. Jesus is in agony. He's distraught. And he says, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. The Jewish leaders I've been preaching to for three years, the Roman soldiers who've executed many people, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. That openness, that love, that's so hard for me. Isn't it hard for you too? Stephen, he dies this way with that attitude. Six, as it says in Hebrews 13, we too should be willing to suffer outside the camp in our everyday lives. For the bodies of those animals are burned outside the camp. Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go, uh, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Going outside the camp, we will leave the camp. We're going to leave the camp. We're going to leave the fellowship. Probably in 20 or 30 or 40 minutes, you'll be out of here. You'll leave the camp. Then what? And seven, let's keep our eyes on Christ. No matter what. He looks up into the heavens. He sees Christ at the very end. So, I think we could live like Stephen. But maybe the challenge is, is to die like Stephen. Let's follow in his steps, just as he followed in Christ's steps. Let's live and let's die like our brother Stephen. And we will now pray for the bread and the wine, as we have communion. Maybe you're thinking a little bit about Stephen's death. That's okay as long as you're really thinking about Jesus' death. Because that's what the communion is. Will you pray with me?